Welcome to the Fifth Estate, the Wheeler Centre's new fortnightly podcast. Recorded in front of an audience in our performance space here in Melbourne, we present news without the cycle, analysis without the spin, aiming for a more measured approach to the big stories of the moment. Your host for the Fifth Estate's indispensable live journalism is broadcaster, journalist and anthropologist Sally Warhaft. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Fifth Estate at the Wheeler Centre. My name is Sally Warhaft and uh, it's just, well, a thrill to see this room so packed this evening. And, uh, well, it should be because uh, we've got some just, well, wonderful, wonderful guests. Two years ago, for a short window of time, Australia had a female Prime Minister, Attorney General, Governor General, Finance Minister and four other senior ministers. (laughs) We now have a Prime Minister who also appointed himself as the Minister for Women, who once said it would be folly to expect that women would ever approach equal representation in large number of areas simply because their aptitudes their abilities and their interests are different for physiological reasons. Well, Tony Abbott, despite what they're saying about him at the moment, is a man of his word because today there is just one woman in the federal cabinet and when Julie Bishop's away, there are none. So tonight we're here to discuss how this is possible in a modern representative democracy and... uh, also what we've learned about the treatment of women with the rise and fall from the Prime Ministership of Julia Gillard. It's fair to say that uh, my two guests tonight have quite a bit in common. They're both Walkley award-winning journalists. They're both best-selling authors. They've both worked in politics, although in different ways. And they both uh, are close to the former Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. Anne Summers is, of course, a journalist, audit, journalist, author, editor and publisher of the online and free digital magazine Anne Summers Reports. And I encourage you all to go home and have a look at that immediately if you don't already know it. And there are brochures out the front. There are brochures out the front. <laughs> Her books include the best-selling Damned Whores and God's Police and a beautiful uh, book, The Lost Mother. And Anne, I'm still looking for that mm. painting. You haven't found it? No. Okay, I'll keep looking. But I did, can I interrupt for a second? I just mm. learnt the most astonishing piece of news just about two hours ago downstairs at the moat. I met somebody who told me that the priest, who's actually Monsignor, who signed the receipt that my grandmother uh, paid the money for the painting, the original painting of my mother, signed, signed by Monsignor uh, Penn Jones, turns out was a convicted pedophile. Wow. Actually wow. Went to, actually went to press. So I think, wow. I mean, I know it's got nothing to do with anything, but... Wow. <laughs> but, you know... Um, oh, there's a bit of a about. Kind of creepy. This mm. incredible painting of my mother as a child. You know, he was in charge of the Catholic Church selling it. Sort of mm, strange. <laughs> I just think we're not going to be able to say wow enough. I know. Tonight. <laughs> Uh, Anne ran the Office of the Status of Women when Bob Hawke was in office and she was also an advisor to Paul Keating. She was the first person to interview Julia Gillard after she lost the leadership and the prime ministership last year. Hard to believe, isn't it? It was only last year. 
Mary Delahunty is a Gold Walkley award-winning journalist and presenter, including host of ABC 730's Victoria edition. She left the media for politics and was a Victorian state government minister for seven years for the ALP. She's currently working as a consultant and her most recent book just published is Gravity, inside the Prime Minister's office during her last year and final days. Please give Anne and Mary a very warm welcome. I want to um, start by asking you both to have a go at this question of whether or not what happened to Julia Gillard um, as a woman, so aside from the other combustible things that were going on around the politics at the time, was her treatment as a woman, as a Prime Minister, inevitable? Yes. Um, Unfortunately, I think at that time it was for a series of reasons. Um, I think Australians are very comfortable with the notion of the offer of female power, that is, females in charge, not as a deputy premier or a deputy prime minister, but actually in charge and running things. I think we like the idea of it. But I think there are corners of our community that are very discomforted with the practice of it. And my sense in, in writing this book and doing the work around this book in that last year of Julie Gillard's prime ministership was that a template using quite toxic sexism was used to hem her in and hound her out. And I wanted to ask the question, was it that Australians are not really ready for an Australian female Prime Minister, as we thought we were, or was it the particular failings of one particular politician? And I don't think you can discount the fact that there was a use of sexism as a political tactic by those on her own side and those on the other side, unfortunately, which was never stood against until it was too late. And, and I count myself... Uh, among those who were too late to acknowledge how important it was. Anne was way ahead of us. And I think it spread like a stain because nobody in authority stood up against it. It spread like a stain on a tablecloth and we had Australian politics degenerating into an obscenity, really, at times. Well, I'd like to make two points. Um, I don't disagree with anything that, that Mary has said, but I'd like to... Um perhaps add to a couple of different points of view. Um, one, just backing up that last point about the sexism directed against Gillard from her own side, which in some ways was worse than, than what was coming from her political opponents, where we're not justifiable, you know, perhaps more understandable. But I'm sure many of us will remember, I think it was very close towards the end when she gave a speech to a Labor women's group and she talked about the... Sorry, she, she gave a speech to a Labor women's group and she talked about two things. One is the men in blue ties mm -hmm. um, who would uh, replace each other. You know, as one left, another one would come and the thing that would, would, would unite them, among other things, would be the blue tie. And the second point she made in that speech was to warn about the risk to abortion um, if there were um, to be a change in, in, in government. 
And she was mocked mercilessly for that speech, including by many in the media, including by many feminists, to their eternal shame, in my opinion, because both things that she said were true and have come to pass. But the thing that really upset me about that was that night, uh, certain members of her own party went on television waving blue ties. I mean, absolutely rubbing her face in it. And I thought that was the most despicable act of disloyalty, um, leaving, leaving gender out of it for one moment, just, just sheer disloyalty. But the fact that they picked up what she herself had identified as a, as a the masculine symbol was you know, equally disgusting. The other point that I'd just like to make, which I think is really um, very germane to what, you know, the way you set this up, Sally, and that is you pointed two years ago there are all these women in these positions. And you can add to, to the numbers that the, the women that you, and the positions that you listed, you can also add three female state premiers and one female chief minister. And there was a very short time in our political history when there was a COAG meeting where the pictures in the paper were a Prime Minister, a Premier for New South Wales, a Premier from Queensland and a Premier from Tasmania who were all female. That was an absolutely remarkable photograph. Uh, at the time, there were also a female Governor of New South Wales and a female Governor of Queensland as well as our Governor-General. And I would just like to make the point as to whether or not Australians accept women in leadership positions. I disagree with you, Mary. I don't think they do. And my reasoning here is that the Prime Minister, sorry, the um, uh, female Governor-General, Quentin Bryce, was replaced by General Peter Cosgrove. The New South Wales Governor, Murray Bashir, was replaced by General uh, David Hurley. And the Queensland Governor of, um, the Governor of Queensland, um, um, whose name escapes me for one second, Penny, Penny uh, Walmsley, was replaced by uh, Justice somebody or other. So in other words, these women were not just replaced by men, they were replaced by men of a certain high authority and rank that is recognised in our society as being superior types of men. And I think they're just rubbing our noses in it, saying, well, OK, girls, you've had your go. Now the real blokes are back in charge. And not just any men. You know, not appointing like in South Australia, they've appointed a man, but he happens to be a, you know, a, a Vietnamese refugee you know, as governor of South Australia, which I think is you know, to be applauded. But why do you have to put generals and judges into these positions? Well, I think the answer is... Liberal National Party governments of a particular right extremity. Mm. And so you're, you're quite right. They are swinging way back. The mm. pendulum is going way back, not only in, in policy and particularly in social policy, but in the symbols, the symbols of office the symbols and, are so and power. And, and look, I remember that wonderful photograph when Hillary Clinton arrived in Australia. Uh, as Secretary of State, and she was met by a female Prime Minister and the female mm. Governor-General. We won't see that mm. for a while, um, and we can't take any of it for granted. But I think it confirms the point that we think we're ready, but in practice we're not. Well, not, not only that, I mean, it's, if, if you look at the, at the numbers, um, both, I think, in this state, certainly in New South Wales, and certainly federally, the numbers of women who are being... Uh, selected for office and being elected oh, yes. to office is going down. So mm. the, you know, the pool or the pipeline, as they call it in the corporate world, up. Is, is getting smaller and smaller. So mm. you know, we're not going to have that range of, of talent to choose from. Uh, so you know, if you, I mean, the Liberals have no show because they don't even try. They've got less than 20% of their representatives are women. Labor used to have a much better 
percentage, I think it was about 38%, but even that is going down. So the actual pool available for selection in the future is getting smaller and smaller. What, what does that sort of pose for the future? I mean, if, if this is, at the moment it's partly a, a, a liberal, conservative um, momentum, I suppose, where there's a different feeling uh, and structure about women in that party. Tony Abbott has said that there is only one woman in his whole uh, uh, party that has merit to be in, in Cabinet. But is this partly also a backlash against what has happened to Julie Gillard and others? That I know, Mary, in your book you asked Julia Gillard that, you know, if it was if it was worth it, if it was, you know, if, if women should go into, into politics. And uh, there was a, a sense in her answer um, of it being, of being a little unsure. Oh, yes, she definitely paused um, and thought about it. Uh, then she said, yes, um, I want to support women going to... It is worth it. But she also said, um, when I asked her about this question of, you know, is it something going on in Australian society about Julia Gillard, Prime Minister, or is it something more generic about the community? Um, and she said, well, you know, when a man becomes Prime Minister, we ask what sort of a leader will he be? But when I became Prime Minister, I, Julia Gillard, they asked, can she lead? It's a very profound difference. She's obviously spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I thought that was a very profound difference. Because if there is an assumption, if you're a man and you become the Prime Minister, you have a right to lead. There is a legitimacy that's conferred upon you uh, by, by winning, even if it's only one vote. Uh, winning in the party room as Tony Abbott won against Malcolm Turnbull. But for Julia Gillard, the question was that that legitimacy had to be won. It was not instantly conferred upon her. And, of course, from the moment she got the job, and I have problems with the way she got the job, I think it was a mistake uh, of that small group in the Labor caucus in the dead of night to suddenly change prime ministers, and I think she faced the sort of reverberating aftermath of that night, but... She was the Prime Minister, like Dennis Napthine, who became the Premier after a night of, of the long knives and negotiations here in Victoria. So why doesn't he get the same sort of Precisely, precisely. Well, is it because he's a Liberal or is it because he's a man? And, you know, we put these questions mm. to, uh, to uh, Tony Abbott, who said that Julia Gillard from the very beginning was illegitimate. So did Kevin Rudd say the same thing. And so you put that question, why was she illegitimate? Well, she came into the office. She wasn't elected by us, the community. You know, she suddenly took the mantle in the dead of night and we woke up next morning and whoops, we've got a new Prime Minister. You, you ask the question of him and others, well, what's the difference between Dennis Napthine? Uh, you know, the day before... Uh, Premier Bailieu was saying at lunchtime and again about four o'clock in the afternoon, I will continue to be Premier. I will continue to lead and work for Victorians. Overnight, something changed. We woke up next morning, whoop, we've got a new Premier. No one has ever challenged his le legitimacy, nor should they. 
He was supported by the party in power. He has the right to be Premier. But why did they challenge Julia Gillard's right? Could Julia Gillard, should she have, might she have, if you could roll back time, when she first became Prime Minister and said, being a woman it, it is not the um, important thing about what I'm going to do. She did what a lot of female women do when yeah. they get power. They subsume that power. I'm just the same as a man. Uh, and in, I mean, what I would have loved to have seen was Julie Gillard stand up and say... Actually, I am a woman and I am the first female Prime Minister in Australia and guess what? I'm going to fix some of the... It's going to be a priority in my government uh, to address the inequality, the pervasive inequality. Could she have... Should she have... Hear me roar. (laughs) Oh, even a a squeak, really, at the beginning. Um, Well, I mean, this is the excruciating calculation that women leaders um, historically have had to make. And and historically, up until very recently, almost all of them have opted for the course of saying, well, you know, the fact that I'm female is neither here nor there. It's, you know, it's peripheral, it's accidental, it doesn't doesn't affect anything, doesn't mean anything. Uh, Let's just pretend that I'm just like a bloke. Well... That's turned out to be a pretty disastrous strategy. It hasn't worked because you can't disregard it and certainly your political enemies don't disregard it. And so I think what's been happening, um, and it's very interesting to watch it as I kind of, kind of monitor this stuff, Julia Gillard herself is kind of reassessing her record. And as recently, you know, I gave an interview in the States a few weeks ago uh, where she admitted that she'd gone about, you know, she'd do it differently now and she would... Uh, uh, not to pretend that gender wasn't an issue. And I think even more pertinently uh, is, if that's a word, is um, Hillary Clinton, who, if you've read her book, her new book, which I would certainly recommend, don't be put off by all the nasty negative reviews, um, it's a very, very interesting account, amongst many other things, of different female leaders around the world. Mm. And she is somebody who also tried to make gender a non-issue when she was running um, in 2008 and also to some extent while she was uh, Secretary of State. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. uh, You can't get away with it, so you might as well turn it into an advantage. But one other observation that Clinton made, which I thought was very interesting and um, not sure that I completely believe it, but this is what she says anyway is that she had no real issues with her gender while she was a senator for mm-hmm. eight years, uh, but it was only when she sought executive office and when she became Secretary of State that suddenly the big issue about her appearance, her hair, um, you know, there are certain male leaders who, you know, wouldn't look her in the eye, wouldn't shake her hand, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, so... She also said that... Uh, if you want to get a bad story off the front page, change your hairstyle. <laughs> I mean, yeah, a, a yeah. sort of linked thing with this that you write about in the book, Mary, you, you wrote that she became bound, Julia Gillard, to the vile stereotypes of female leadership mm-hmm. while the finest were denied her, such as the leader as mother or the leader as a wise woman. And instead, you say, she was branded a witch with all the fear of mysterious female power that is attached to that. Um, and But I thought when I read that, I just thought, well, I 
don't know whether you know the leader of mother as mother. If that if that's what we're hoping for, I just think when men get into power, we don't attach what any kind of a description in front of it, and yet that was sort of almost the best we could hope for a leader as mother. Well, I was struggling. Yeah, I was struggling because I I wanted to find out, you know, what would history say about this prime minister. Um, 50 years down the track you'd look at the first drafts of history and that's the headlines and the newspaper articles and the trolls online and those drafts I think would give a historian a false understanding of what this person was like as Prime Minister. So I tried to look at her style as Prime Minister, her faults and her, her, her positives and leading from what she said to me that day over a, a cup of peppermint tea she said you know can I lead, was the question. Uh, with men, we say, will he be a strong leader? Will he be an inclusive leader? Will he be a consensus leader, etc." And I started to look for models of female leadership. And uh, the mother comes up all the time. It comes up in literature. It comes up in popular culture. Uh, you think about Margaret Thatcher. She was seen as the strong mother of Glad England. she wasn't my mother. Yeah, well, her, you know... <laughs> That's the point, isn't it? She somehow managed, you know, despite being a pretty average kind of a mother to her kids, apparently, uh, to be seen as the great strong woman because she took... Indira Gandhi would be another model Indira Gandhi, exactly. Mm. I looked at the wise woman and I thought, Angela Merkel Mm. definitely takes that role and she certainly has not made gender a big issue... um, She's been she a bit like Gillard. She's seen as the mother of Germany. Yeah, I suppose she is she now. Is, the grandmother, she's, the grandmother. she's been there long enough. You see, she was able but, to grow into the power that Gillard was never allowed. She was never allowed to... Ex- well, and she didn't explain mm. herself right from the beginning. Um, but the flip side of the wise woman, which I think Hillary has now adopted, and again, longevity does help with that, mm. But she was branded right from the moment she took the job. And it wasn't just those hideous placards that were held up, you know, at the anti-carbon tax rally in in Canberra, in front of the Parliament House in 2011, held high and proud saying, you know, ditch the witch, Bob Brown's bitch. Something changed in Australian politics Mm. when that line was crossed. Mm. And the leader of the opposition and two senior opposition female members of parliament, Bronwyn Bishop and Sophie Mirabella, stood up in front of those signs and by their presence, of course, gave those signs credit and credibility. Um, See, I think there's also, though, another um, model for leadership that, and if you apply uh, an alternate model to um, Australian politics last week, for example... Oh, and you look was at a the, doozy, wasn't it? Well, if you look at the... Um, <laughs> I mean, you couldn't help but compare Julia Gillard's legislative record with Tony Abbott's. Now, Tony Abbott hasn't been able to get anything at all through the Senate. No. Nope. Julia lost. Gillard did not lose a single piece of legislation. I mean, now, what is it, 500 and whatever, I forget the number, but it's some huge number of pieces of legislation that she, as the leader of a government in a minority lower house... And not, or, and not controlling the Senate either. She didn't control either house. She was still able to negotiate. So why don't we see our leader as somebody who is actually competent, you know, a negotiator, um, somebody who is skilled at bringing differing points of view together, who is skilled at achieving consensus and is able to achieve results. Now, on those sort of 
uh, measurements, Julia Gillard was an exceptional leader. And that's Tony what she Abbott insisted on, is though, isn't it? Leader. That it was about policy, not personality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Getting her track record there is mm. impeccable. Mm. But, you know, she did say, um, it, it's quite true, she said she parked her gender. And, and I guess I disagree with, with, with both of you a little bit. Uh, because when the blowtorch is on you, um, and I was a minister in a very tiny pond compared to the pressure on Julia Gillard, um, you try and minimise all your disadvantages and you carry quite a few of them into politics anyway, regardless of who you are. So I think it's understandable that you park it. You don't make a big thing of it. Um, but you have to have an opportunity to stand up against the sexism or to have a few people in your corner. And it's interesting that, that Tanya Plibersek, I think very bravely and forensically, um, said when she launched Gravity uh, for us last week, she said, we tried to ignore the nutters and the trolls online who were sending, as, as Anne has described very early, these lurid cartoons, these pornographic images of our Prime Minister to every single member of Parliament and nobody called it out until Julia herself as Prime Minister did. Mm. And Tanya said last week, she's the Deputy Leader of uh, the Federal Opposition, the Labor Party and uh, Federal uh, Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, and she said, we talked about this and we thought, if we highlight it, we draw attention to the nutters, we also take the, the media's interests, such as it was, away from our policy achievements, which we've just touched on. And I can understand that decision, but she now says we came to it too late. You know, the feminists really got to the field when the, the game was over and that Julia Gillard must have felt very, very alone. Mm -hmm. I think it's a situation where um, well, I'm very pleased to have done what I did and I'm glad that it you know, made such a, um, a difference and it, I think it gave her some comfort because, she, as you say, she was feeling very alone mm -hmm. and I'm glad for whatever help I could, could, could provide there. But, I mean, I think looking, looking at the political problem that she faced and you know, not wanting to draw attention to it herself for the obvious reasons. I mean, that surely is a situation where you get one of your head kickers in the back of the caucus, but they were, particularly a boy, to kicking her to do it. Now, well, not all feet. of them. I mean, I think, I think there are people that could have been persuaded to take on that role yeah. and saying, look, yeah. you know, get one of the buffy blokes to say, this is disgusting and I went out and... And, you know, that, that would have had mm. credibility with the media. It would have deflected from her. You never had the leader do that kind of job anyway. It's always should be given to some kind of, back, you know, a backbencher who's got some credibility in the area. But, you know, by letting it go on for so long, everybody became so complicit uh, that then it became impossible for... And you know, as, as Tanya admitted when she gave that speech at your book launch the other day, they were kind of trapped there and they couldn't do it anything. It spiralled out of control, didn't it? Mm. And, and there, there were so. so many different sort of repercussions of that for, for Julie Gillard as a Prime Minister and a leader. But I think also, uh, I mean, I, it became incredibly difficult to, as a woman, criticise Julie Gillard um, as a politician. Yes. And that really irritated me. Mm. There were lots mm. of things about Julie Gillard as Prime Minister I just didn't like at all. And somehow uh, when I voiced those, 
I would be accused of, you know, not sticking with the sisterhood or that, you know, that it, 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 it blurred everything to such an extent that you couldn't... She couldn't even get a fair critique mm. uh, from, from people, I and think. And I think that's still the case. That, I mean, it's still impossible or it's still very difficult to talk about her prime ministership without, you know, applying this, this whole kind of, you know, perspective to it because it was such a, an overriding, um, um, you know, characteristic, I guess, of, of her term in office and, and it was so, so horrible... Uh, both at a personal level for her, but also what it says about us as a country that we could allow that to happen. And, you know, it, it sort of... Everyone had permission to send these horrible emails and to make these jokes and, you know, it just went on for ages before anyone kind of stopped it. So, um, you know, I think I think that's the problem. That you're, you're, you're drawing attention to, Sally, that it was very hard to criticise her then. Um, I think that's true, but it's also hard now. It's very still hard... It's still, there's still not enough... Uh, I'm not saying she should be criticised, but I'm saying you want to be able to um, objectively reflect on and perhaps come to some judgments about her term in office and did we agree with this and not agree with that and she could have done this differently and blah, 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 as we would say about Keating or Hawke or John Howard or you know any of any previous leader. We still can't do that adequately with her because of this situation. Well, I think we have to. Um, I, I think it's really important that we do that and do it fairly quickly, and that was another of the motivations for um, nagging her and her chief of staff to be allowed to follow her around up close and personal for that what turned out to be the last year. Because I agree, Anne, that it was becoming impossible to segregate you know, her policy achievements or failures uh, from her treatment as a woman Prime Minister. And I think that is going to hold us back in terms of uh, realistic support for and advocacy for and then critiquing of the next female Prime Minister. And I think it's critical. I mean, she had to... She was hemmed in by this extraordinary trifecta, aside from her own faults, which I do go through in the book... She was hemmed in because she suddenly came to the job, unannounced, unexplained, and really she didn't explain for most of her period as Prime Minister. Secondly, she, had, she faced two opponents. One was Overt, and that was the leader of the opposition, and he was, I think everyone agrees, one of the most pugilistic opposition leaders in modern history. But she also faced a covert and just as effective in using the media... Um, in her own side, in her own caucus, in her own cabinet for a while, and that was Kevin Rudd and his supporters. So she had to develop, uh, you know, a double defence strategy. And some of her great mistakes, and I think about media policy, which was a total disaster, you know, thrown into the cabinet, not discussed, and I talk about that in the book, not discussed in cabinet because she couldn't trust them not to leak it. And so it was a policy mess, and there are several other examples. Now, that's not to excuse the person, but it is to try and understand the context in which they worked. And I think if we have a sense of that, lots of people say, well, the hung parliament caused her difficulties. I agree with Anne. I think she was a triumph in the hung parliament. I was a member of a hung parliament. We had to negotiate every single item uh, with country independence, very similar to the context that Julia Gillard found. 
and she did not lose a vote on the floor of the House. She negotiated some milestone legislation which will change Australia, particularly the National Insurance Disability Scheme. The Gonski reforms, which she worked on for over seven years, this long, patient, long march for education reform, which she was passionate about, which she finally got uh, the legislation through tragically and ironically the very day that she was chopped off. So they're the context in which she worked and, and I think we have to understand that context so that we then can make a realistic critique. But you can't put to the side, and I spoke to so many people, so many journalists in Canberra when I was up there, they'd say, look, oh, she's getting a rotten time. You know, this is the most devastating, toxic, toxic, nasty, pornographic stuff that's ever been thrown at any leader. But putting that aside, and I'd say, yes, but how does this woman get out of bed every morning? In fact, I said that to her. Mm. How do you face it? You know, this, the quail menu, the menu up there in Queensland, mm. the Liberal Party fundraising menu that that ridiculed and demeaned her body parts and nobody apologised for that. Joe Hockey was there. He said he didn't see the menu. I believe him. But wouldn't you You're think generous. someone from the Liberal Party would say <laughs> that's... <laughs> that's <laughs> I'm a generous kind of a gal, really. <laughs> it's, um, it's interesting to me. You, you both may well uh, know... Uh, how Julia Gillard's going with her post-political working life. But the impression I get is that... And, and it's it's interesting, too, that from the night she gave her last speech as Prime Minister when she'd lost the ballot, she uh, spoke very eloquently with that lovely line about, you know, it wasn't everything, it wasn't nothing, it was something. something. Mm. And that there's also a line towards the end of your book, Mary, where... Um, she's she's lost. She's back in her office, I think, having a glass of wine before she goes to the lodge with Wayne Swan uh, to to drink this is more. The night she lost. Him. And uh, no, where where she an, an awareness that the whole world awaits her. A, a, a sort of you know where she says something to you like, yeah, I, I haven't thought about that so much, but it does. And I get the feeling that Julie Gillard's uh, working life, and she's still a r relatively young person, is going to be really enjoyable for her, but also focused on gender. And if you go back to her, the, the vast majority of her working years in politics, it wasn't terribly mm. important at all mm. to her. In fact, one of my criticisms of her as Prime Minister is how little she did for women. Initially. Oh, paid maternity she, leave. She, I mean, she changed quite... Um, I think paid, paid maternity leave, yes. Um, she, uh, I think Jenny Macklin as well. But, I mean, the, mm. the two of them, we owe, we owe that policy to, to them. She reduced the single mother's pension. Yep, mistake. Big mistake. Um, well, she doesn't think so. She's got an argument for that. Yeah, but, um, but, anyway, I'm not here to... to, to, to canvas that but I think I don't think it's true that she did nothing for women um, I think what what happened is in her last year when she realized that the previous strategy of pretending that she wasn't a woman was you know not going anywhere and that she um, she really 
not just had an obligation, but she actually realised that no one else could do it. If she didn't do it, it wouldn't happen. And that was when she did things like, you know, she launched a campaign for Australian government, and I don't know if it's still happening or not because you wouldn't know with this lot, but, you know, the, the Australian government was going to put all its resources towards uh, ending female genital mutilation, not only in this country but also in surrounding countries. She also put a lot of money, and we know this got chopped, uh, into a, a program for combating violence against women in the Pacific nations. And that was the thing, of course, that led Alan Jones to make this famous remark that women were destroying the joint. Um, and she did a whole lot of other things. And one of the most remarkable things she did, I thought, was a speech she gave towards the end at the Business Council of Australia when she, you know, she was one of the few women in the room and she made a very provocative remark where she said that you know, she looked forward to the day when she would visit boardrooms and the, you know, the only other woman there would not be uh, the one serving the tea. So you know, she got quite bolshy about it towards the end, but it, it, but it did um, it'd take a while. You've raised the question, Sally, about what she's doing now and while I'm not in close touch with her, I do know a little bit about what she's doing and I think... Um, you're, you're right, and it is interesting that she's doing, she's making sort of education of girls in particular uh, a kind of a lifelong mission. And the, the two things she seems to be doing, as far as I'm aware, apart from the fact she's written a book which will be coming out uh, in late September, and I think we're all going to be very interested to see how far she goes in that book with dealing um, not just with the questions that we're discussing tonight, though I hope she does go further than she has before, but also just how she writes about her government. I, mean, I think all that's going to be fascinating and looking forward to that. But just the two things she appears to be doing is she's doing a lot of international speaking. Apparently she's in quite demand, in, uh, particularly in Canada, Europe and the United States, to go and talk to senior women about women and leadership and and she is much more famous in the rest of the world now than mm. she was as prime minister which is pretty interesting because of the misogyny speech i think partly because of that and uh, you know hillary clinton's kind of given her a few mm. um sort of public you know, mentions and, and so on but the other thing she's doing is this global i don't know the exact name but it's a, it's a global education fund um, uh, sorry gap Global Education Project right. booking. Anyway, it's a multi-billion dollar exercise where she is actually going around raising money from governments for this and apparently has raised billions of, of dollars and it is an education for girls project. So I find it very interesting that she's gone that way rather than, say, going into the UN or into other sort of governmental bodies as so, so many do I, other leaders do. She's so do. far away from that. Yes. Previous structure that she knew so yes. well, yeah. she must be enjoying. Yeah, she's living in that Adelaide. Freedom from that. <laughs> Is it possible um, uh, just to go back to where we sort of started with the two years ago? And you know, as a woman, you know, you could be feel very whatever your political beliefs. You, know, you just feel very uplifted with a sense that there was a changing culture. Now, of course, it it, it was such a debacle. Is it? I'm looking for a bit of hope here. Is it possible <laughs> that it all went so far the wrong way that it's now, here we are, Tony Abbott's the Minister for Women, there's one woman in the Cabinet... I've got to say something on this. He's not the Minister for Women. I wish people would stop saying this. He's not the Minister for Women. Isn't he? No, he's not. The I, don't, I mean, I don't... McC sort of Senator Michaela Cash is the Minister. I thought she was assisting. Yeah, well, 
I, when I ran the Office of the Status of Women, mm. we take that as the benchmark, 1980. Under Bob Hawke, yeah. <laughs> Under Bob Hawke. He was the Prime Minister. I was working for him in his department. Susan Ryan, Senator Susan Ryan, was the Minister assisting the Prime Minister on the Status of Women. Yep. So what Tony Abbott has done has replicated that exact structure, which I have advocated for years. Unfortunately, Gillard didn't do it and Rudd didn't do it and Keating didn't do it. Um, so we've got women's policy back in the Prime Minister's office in, department, sorry, where I think it belongs. It's treated seriously and is a high-ranking um, policy area. And the Prime Minister himself has no portfolios or herself has no portfolio, so there's always a minister assisting on these key areas. So this is a very normal situation. I know it's good fun to say he's the Minister for Women because we hate him, but it's not true. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Well, well, he's doing know. a lot, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> it's working well. It has changed, though. There, there have been nuances. I, I mean, Tanya Plebisek, I think, was she at one stage? She was Women's yeah, Affairs. She was women's the Minister affairs. for Women. Yeah. And when the women was down in the welfare area yeah. where... Unfortunately, um, Jenny Macklin was it? Um, well, Jenny Macklin was the big, was the major. But unfortunately, under Labor, under Gillard and Rudd, women's policy languished. In my pit, that's my word. Uh, in fact, here in the welfare department was not in the policy powerhouse department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, which is where I think it belongs. So you know, there, there has always always been a minister for women. All right. Well, I'm but, well. I'm glad. I'm going to stop peddling that myth then, because that's a bit of good news, Anne. I, I know Thank it's a very popular very line. And let's talk um, on your general question, well, though. Is there any room for optimism? Yeah. Look, has yeah. it beca- has it gone so far the other way that at some point uh, it'll it'll obviously have to come back to, and when it does, that when it does. The next time a woman is in a position in this country to perhaps be Prime Minister, do you think everyone will handle it differently? Well, the elephant in the room is the media's treatment. You know, I, I, we, politics is mediated through the media, um, and that's pretty obvious, I guess. But that was, in very large part, one of the reasons why Julia Gillard could never communicate her own private passions. I argue in gravity that, that she has, you know, a carapace around her. She had to protect herself from what she called the incoming. She had to have the padding on, as she said. You can be yourself. When I asked her that question, can you be yourself? Yes, you can, but you have to have padding on. She needed the padding because she was constantly being assailed, as we've just described. But there was a component of the media who was bent on regime change, and I think it's fair to say that was News Limited more broadly. And everything that she did was ridiculed. And so an assessment of her policy strengths or weaknesses was always funnelled through this level of disrespect for the Prime Minister. So unless the media has decided that we will never treat another Prime Minister like that again, and I'm not sure that I've seen that evidence, uh, we will face the same problem. But the optimism is that I don't think women and good men will stay silent as long as we did under the Julia Gillard uh, uh, Time. I was going to say experiment, which is a terrible thing to say because a lot of people think it was an yeah. experiment. It wasn't, but it wasn't terribly successful. I think um, the media won't change um, mm. and, and it's unrealistic to think that it will. And I think what she ought to have done and what the next leader, male or female, should do, but 
and that is you do what all smart political leaders do, and that is you play your favourites in the gallery, and you get you know you have your, your certain journalists that you give privileged information to, and in return, it's a protection racket. That's what it is, and until that game changes, you've got to play it. And Julia's problem is she didn't trust anybody, and therefore they all were against her. But at least, I mean, most prime ministers have somebody that they feed stuff to and who offers them not just, you know, good coverage but also um, credibility. If, if you choose the senior enough people, um, offers them uh, credibility and a bit of a protection amongst the, 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 the pack. And I, that, you know, it's a tried and true strategy. It works and I think she should have done that. I understand why she didn't. But in terms of, of, of the optimism, the thing that I'm finding, finding very heartening at the moment is that... It's taken this, all these horrible experiences, but it has really energised women. Yeah. And it's particularly energised young women. And there's this whole, you know, I think it's like the 70s all over again. You know, there's this incredible resurgence of feminism. And I'm sort of uh, reading stuff everywhere and I'm thinking, wow, this is great. It sounds very familiar. And, uh, you know, <laughs> thought we'd done that. <laughs> um, okay, we hadn't quite finished it, so we're doing it again. Uh, this time with feeling, and there's a hell of a lot more of it because there's now several generations of us, you know, all at the barricades. So I'm feeling um, pretty good about it. But what, one thing we had to be very vigilant about is that we don't kind of just disappear into our own anger, that we're very focused about what we want. Mm. And we have to be very practical about what we want and, uh, and make sure we get it this time. The other thing I, I do want to add, because I think you've got to be careful when a woman goes into public life that we don't expect her to carry the whole feminist movement on her shoulders. There's just not enough, as we know now, women in politics to do that. I was fortunate. I was in a cabinet where almost a third were women. So we were just as vain, venal and virtuous as the blokes. You forgot the gender. It was policy arguments and, and gossip, really, that, that went round the cabinet table. So I think we've just got to hold back a little bit. I'm not saying that women shouldn't be conscious of their role once they get in there. And I don't know a woman on the left of politics who is not conscious of making a difference for women behind her. But we've got to be careful that we don't load them up. We've got to support them. Mm. We've got to speak up for them. We've got to criticise them. And we've got to call out sexism when we see it. But, you know, it's, it's a road to hell... If we're See, going to I, say to the next woman, you've got to do it all for women. I'm they not, can't. I, we're not ready I, yet. I get that point, but I, I, I meet uh, female MPs from both sides, yeah. more from the left because there we are know more what the numbers them. are, yeah. that have, who have babies, children, and they suffer more silently in the stresses they have being politicians and mothers and trying to juggle that and pretend that their lives are doable uh, with what, and they won't speak out about it. They will not speak out about it in their caucus to their leaders because they don't want to look ungrateful. They want promotion. Uh, they don't want to be seen to be complaining and I think that you know, while you've got that, that's not about being a feminist icon. That's about calling it as you see it. And even under Julie Gillard, there were MPs in her own caucus that were not would not were not doing that. Well, that's true. Um, although I can give examples where 
I mean, my own example, I once, uh, you know, I had a personal circumstance. My husband died when I was a minister and had three portfolios or something. I wouldn't do breakfasts. One breakfast a year I'd do because I wanted to see my children. I wanted to take them to school. Now, I'm sure that was a bit of a disadvantage and I'm sure people talked about that and said you're not totally committed. But women do do that quietly and will say, no, you know, several times a week I will be home to, to you know, have a meal with the children or vice versa at breakfast. But you raise a really interesting point and that's something I'm fascinated by and I've written about it in both books. That intersection between the personal and the public. What are the personal passions, the personal experiences, the personal values that ferment quietly in that unmediated section between the public and the private and then end up in public policy? And, you know, that's where the most interesting aspects of anyone in public life, male or female, but particularly female, because they mightn't talk about it too much but they're actually actively supporting women in their department. They're actively supporting and mentoring women in their own party. They're actively supporting and mentoring women in their own electorate. And they'll do it quietly and, you know, they'll, they'll continue to point out the fact that some of the men don't do that because the assumption is that men will automatically be promoted. So you raise thing. an interesting... That's the whole thing. I mean, I just think we, had, we and MPs, both male and female, should be calling out this double standard. You know, just as women in, in any other workplace, why should women MPs be the ones who have to bear all of the burdens of child raising and child minding? Why do their careers have to be adjusted, you know, whereas you don't have... And I mean, Nicola Roxon used to talk about this all mm. the time. And she was mm. a cabinet minister. She was the attorney general, I think, at the time. Uh, or the health minister, and she had a you know two year old or three year old, and people were always asking her you know how how did she manage you know what arrangements did she make for the baby while she was busy you know fixing up the health department, and she said what really riled her is that there were men in the cabinet with children the same age who were never asked, mm. and you know until we address that fundamental inequality and we you know we make you know, the fact that having a child involves two people. And two parents, and that one, you know, both of them have to make sacrifices in their working lives if they want to have children. And we've got to get women to stop being so willing to assume this burden and the guilt that goes with it. We've just got to shuck that off and uh, insist that the burden of child raising is shared equally. We have to train our sons. Well, I would say no. I'd say if, if, oh, if they're yes. not willing, no. If you're not willing to be an equal partner, don't marry them. Don't have the baby in the first place. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah. But, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying I'm being to practical. sort of. I'm being very practical. I'm trying to increase the pool of possible fathers. <laughs> Good on you, Mary. Yeah. <laughs> I'll introduce you to my son. He's a cracker. <laughs> If you've got a question, just put your hand up and if somebody puts a microphone into it, you can just start talking. Mary, I'd just like to ask you, um, you haven't really mentioned much tonight, although you did address it in the book, about the cancer that is actually within the Labor Party itself because it has a capacity to shoot itself in the foot over and over and over again. And that means that that party actually needs to be majorly 
transformed. It's not reform that will do it. It's transformation Mm. into the heart and soul of what it says it is, which it actually isn't. So I'm just interested in your point of view about that. I agree. You've summarised it magnificently. I would love to speak to you later then. (laughs) Well, (laughs) thank you. I mean, it was, a, it was... Lots of Prime Ministers in modern history have faced dysfunctional cabinets and, at times, not terribly supportive caucus. But I don't think we've ever seen anything quite so subversive, quite so strategically subversive and evidence of constant betrayal as we saw uh, through that period, three, hour, three years and three days... Um, and, you know, I, I, I write about the fact that it was as though Julia Gillard had one arm tied behind her and both her legs tied together and she was trying to run a relay race. Um, the most successful governments are governments where you have a cabinet where people can speak freely, can argue freely, where you have a cabinet subcommittee system so that major policies like media or education or any of the important policies that the federal government deals with can be thrashed out with people of goodwill and different opinions. But if you can't trust your own cabinet and your own caucus to discuss policy, you are completely hidebound. You cannot govern. And unless the Labor Party gets its act together seriously... Uh, about that, uh, it will not govern. It will not govern again, sadly. Put your hand up if you... Yep. Uh, My question is to, I guess, both Mary and Anne. Um, You drew a comparison between the um, uh, change to uh, Julia from Kevin Rudd and uh, bail you to Napthine. I just wonder, and I'm a huge supporter of Julie Gillard, huge supporter. I just wonder, in, in your opinion, to what extent, because I'm, I'm also a history teacher, and I just wonder to what extent the sense of fair play comes into it. Because the impression that I got was that Kevin Rudd didn't want to go. He was upset about going. Um, and there seemed to be a sense of, you know, being toppled, being thrown out. Whereas the sense with Napfine um, and Bailu, I got the sense that uh, Bailu didn't really, wasn't really that upset about going. So I just wondered to what extent our sense of fair play was upset by what happened that time and to what extent that was, um, you know, maybe held against Julie Gillard. Um, you know, not, yep. um, not justifiably, Okay, I guess, I think, but yeah, yeah, that's my question. Great. Mary? Oh, look, undoubtedly there, there was a, a slight difference and that difference was that Ted Bailey finally accepted his fate with Jeff Shaw pulling the strings and acceded to the change of leadership. He then set about supporting the new Premier. The big difference is that Kevin Rudd never accepted the fact that overwhelmingly didn't even need a vote back in June 2010. Overwhelmingly, the caucus supported Julia Gillard and were fed up with his dysfunctional uh, arrangements as Prime Minister. He set about from the beginning, the evidence I think is quite clear, he and his supporters 
uh, in trying to uh, take the job back. It is a, a profound difference, but of course the public was not aware of that. And, and I think it was a mistake, um, and I think the Labor Party concedes that it was a mistake, not to explain uh, how dysfunctional and disorganised and chaotic he was as Prime Minister and how Julia Gillard as acting Prime Minister, uh, often when he was overseas, would be absolutely deluged with papers and policies and briefs from the public service and from ministers because they knew a decision would be made uh, a paper would be signed off, things would move along. Um, that's, the, that's the difference. But we didn't tell anybody about that. And so quite rightly, the public is shaking its head saying, what on earth happened? And he, isn't he Mr Popularity? Um, thank you very much for this evening. I've loved it. Um, I've got two quick points. One is I could never understand why Julia over the carbon tax didn't just come out and say... I have a different position now because I've had to negotiate within a hung parliament. And I think that would have just put all the lie talk aside. So there's that one. The other point is the media. And um, I've, I'm a recent tweeter. And my children tell me that I've single-handedly put the twit back into Twitter. Um, <laughs> however, I'm quite busy. And I'm absolutely shocked by the polarisation of the media and, you know, the Bolts and the Joneses, that, that mob, and then the attacks on the ABC. And, and I'm just disheartened by the polarisation in the media. So I'd be really worried if we had another female Prime Minister bob up soon because I, I don't think we've dealt with that at all. Um, and I'll talk about the tax. I think Julia Gillard did explain that. Just no one, the, 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 no one was prepared to listen to it. I mean, the, the successful branding of the tax or the the, um, um, the turning of the tax into such a political liability. Um, I mean, that, that part of the of, of, of doing that was to say, well, she only did it because you know she had to because the Greens made her. I mean, I think that that was understood. I I, I think. Um, there was probably no way that she could retreat from that without going sort of, you know, full on. Um, Tony Abbott was an extraordinarily difficult opponent for her, which is, um, you know, why it's so interesting to watch him at the moment and see how he deals with a similar kind of opposition from a, and a very unpredictable political force. Um, so I'm quite, I'm quite enjoying that. Um, <laughs> is it a bit, a bit of karma, you think, Anne? <laughs> Yeah, there, well, was a, they, there was a cartoon recently that I saw online. <laughs> it was um, a cartoon of um, uh, of Tim Matheson, Julia Gillard's partner, in his suit, sitting in front of a doctor with his stethoscope round his neck, and this cartoon of Julia sort of rolling back, laughing ahead, laughing hysterically, and the caption says, "Doc, she's been laughing like this ever <laughs> since the Senate sat." <laughs> 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 oh, do you dare take one more? Put your hand right up in the air. Oh, and a gentleman. Thank you. Lovely. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it very much too. Um, I was wondering, um, with the leaders of the uh, other women in leadership roles, the other premiers and the Democrats, um, are they getting the same um, things happening to them as happened to Gillard? 
Well, certainly um, Anna Bly did. Um, it's interesting, I looked at that um, in the book, actually. Uh, I looked at what Joan Kerner faced as the first female Premier here, now quite a few years ago. She was ridiculed by News Corporation, always as the housewife. She was always in the spotted dress, do you remember? Um, she never wore anything spotted. She swears she never wore anything spotted. But she was painted as this blousy woman, you know, banging around the kitchen of the state of Victoria. But what changed was that the cartoons moved from the kitchen, which again were demeaning and, of course, reducing the legitimacy of a woman to the top job. But the cartoons moved from the kitchen into the bedroom and it was a, a terrible descent into obscenity. Um, I think we saw some of it with, with Anna Bly. In fact, um, I talked to one of her ministers who, who went to a lot of the focus groups uh, for both her elections, and he said he was absolutely shocked by the number of men, particularly older men, you know, 55 and above, who, whatever the question was, would always answer, and forgive my language, would, would answer with that bitch and that slut, they're talking about the Premier, that bitch will, gets, will get what's coming to her. didn't matter what the topic was. And after a while he said to me, I couldn't listen to this rancid, angry sexism anymore. And it's as though it's almost a tryout off-Broadway, you know, up there in Queensland... Um, before we saw it, the full onslaught against uh, against Gillard. So yes, premiers have have had it. I think um, this thing about um, you know the cartoonists putting women in the bedroom. Um, I actually remember remember when Cheryl Kernow was in was in politics, and during that that era, um, Bill Leake, the cartoonist for the Australian, used to do a lot of. I mean, certainly not in the Pickering class. I mean, they weren't pornographic, yeah. but they were. They were kind of, you know, a bit, bit risque. But I, I mean, I used to sort of really notice that he could never draw a female leader, political or other leader, except in bed. And I mean, he did a cartoon of me a few weeks ago and made fun of me. And my partner remarked to me, well, it was the first time he's ever drawn you with your clothes on. So it was actually a bit of an advancement. Oh, it's an advance. <laughs> um, so I, th I think this, this, this depiction of women as sluts, as, you know, as bedroom roles and all the rest of it, has been with us for quite a long time and it's been public for quite a long time. I think with Gillard, it reached a kind of apogee... Um, First of all, because she was the most powerful position a woman's ever got to in this country. So, you know, there was that. She was the first woman to actually uh, occupy that position. But she also ticked every single bo negative box, you know. She was single, childless, an atheist, uh, a migrant, you know, red hair. Oh, uh, well, you know, that does it for you, doesn't fat it? Fat legs. <laughs> I mean, you know, every single thing you could think of yeah. um, with every other... F previous leader, I think, has at least been married or had kids or, you know, had some redeeming features on this, <laughs> on this, you know, way of looking at the world. And Gillard, um, you know, which is what we all thought was so fantastic when she first got the job. Wow, we've got this, you know, female atheist, you know, not unmarried, living in sin at the lodge, you know, this is fantastic. <laughs> and everyone, people in America are saying, wow, how, how could you guys do that? And we thought, oh, Australians are so tolerant, you know, we, we're, we're like that. <laughs> 
Well, as it turns out, we're not. <laughs> we weren't. <laughs> oh, we could go on all night, but we can't. Our time is up, but uh, it's been fascinating to hear both of you and your insights and uh, wisdom, having watched this for quite some time. And, uh, well, thank you especially for your optimistic notes, you know. We sure shall... We shall go on. We shall return. Uh, thank you all very, very much for coming. Thanks, Alex. Please thank our guests. Yeah. And Subscribe to the Fifth Estate podcast for your fortnightly taste of provocative and considered news analysis. And for a full program of talks, visit wheelercentre.com.